economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics, and Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, welcome. Uh, today we got kind of a fun episode, although we are minus Justin. He had some fatherly duties to tend to uh, today. We were like inches away from having him join, but it didn't work out. So planning to do a two-parter on Milton Friedman's work on corporate social responsibility. He did some provocative stuff way back when, and it's the 50-year anniversary, Peter? That's right. That's kind of brought up some of these issues. And basically, there's a lot of mudslinging against Friedman's thoughts on it and thinking that we're all uh, more progressive in our thoughts now of of dual bottom lines and uh, triple bottom lines and conscious capitalism. And so there's been quite a movement, uh, maybe especially over the last 30 years, I'd say, but 20 years for sure, from people like John Mackey of Whole Foods and a number of other folks who thought that there's a kinder, softer way to doing business that is more inclusive and better for mankind. And so people have misunderstood capitalism, and it's it, it can bring a lot more to the table than what cold-hearted Milton Friedman espoused that we're just chasing after the almighty dollar only. And so that's what we're going to set the stage of today and, and talk about those issues. And I think we'll have Peter kind of start off with the summary of, of Friedman's thoughts. Yeah, definitely, Russ. So like Russ said, we just passed the 50th anniversary. Friedman uh, published it in September of 1970. And so you can go back, you know, mentally to the social climate of the time. The 70s were kind of a time of progressive change and cultural change, maybe the idea that companies need to work for the people rather than for the companies. And so Friedman publishes what is a a very controversial article at the time, because no one has had ever said it quite like Friedman had. There, There were, you know, economists of the past like Smith, who, you know, you could say maybe alluded to something like this, but but Friedman uh, was sort of the first. And Friedman's summary statements, which has been called now shareholder capitalism. So that's what it's been done. But a summary statement is there is one and only one social responsibility of business to use its resources to engage in activities designed to increase profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game which is to say, engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. So that's Friedman's summary statement right there. And and there's a lot of pieces to that. And so the the first that we might get into is Friedman's sort of ethical argument for this. And what Friedman points out is that, you know, the CEO of a company is not the person who owns the company. The company doesn't belong to them, right? They might have shares or something like that. But at the end of the day, the company's resources that it actually owns, so the company doesn't actually own its workers, right? They can leave whenever they want. But what they do own is their capital. That's their buildings, their machines, you know, their intellectual property, all these things that allow them to produce their good that other people don't have. That's what the business owns. And the owners of that business are the shareholders. When you buy stocks, you're buying a share of the company's capital. You're buying a piece of it. 
And so Friedman's argument is this, is that when CEOs sign on or, you know, any sort of manager signs onto a company, their contract is to benefit the owner. The owner has made the contract with them. They're doing their best to benefit the owner. And so Friedman's ethical arguments is that basically CEOs should be responsible for maximizing profit because then they're being good stewards of the resources that are being given to them under contracts by, by the owners of the company to manage. And so that's his ethical argument out of space. What would you say, Russ? Do you think that's about what you would think? Yeah, that's, I think, the right way. I listened to an economist, David Henderson, give a version of this that I thought was kind of compelling that I thought was worth sharing. So when he was young, he had a brother, an older brother, and they liked to go golfing. And so somehow the brother had hired uh, his little brother to be his caddy for the golf outing that day. And David, young David being uh, kind-hearted and his mom had always instilled in helping people out and, and whatnot. So it wasn't uncommon, you know, when he'd go golfing to help people find their golf balls, you know, even people that weren't there. And so that particular day he went out and sure enough on hole number four, uh, there was an elderly couple that had lost their ball and they were still, it was in the other fairway. So they were still moving towards their green. And David just automatically went over and started helping them find their ball. And uh, his brother got upset with him and said, I have, I have hired you for this job today. We're moving forward. Stop looking for the balls. Don't help those people. And so the moral of the story is David came back from that and shared it with his mom, kind of ratting out his brother. And his mom totally agreed with his older brother that it was different this time. You weren't on your own time when you go golfing and you can choose to help people find their balls if you want. You were hired by your older brother and you should be following what his wishes were for your job that day. And so I thought that was kind of a provocative way of thinking about this issue too, that people uh, have hired, the shareholders have hired the manager to do that. And so they have an obligation to, to do what's best for long-term shareholder wealth. So, yeah, I think that's a, a great example, Russ, because it gets at a, another important point in Friedman's article, which is that or maybe that's not in Friedman's article that people sort of think is in there and they, they, they don't read, which is uh, Friedman is not saying that we cannot try to make society better through social change or something like that. Friedman never argues, you know, don't give to charity or something like that. In fact, Friedman's argument really fits well with the economic idea of comparative advantage. Uh, and comparative advantage just means that there's, there's different activities in the world and some people have a lower opportunity cost or just a lower cost of engaging in those activities. And so one, one activity you could think of is charity. You could, you know, be part of the American Red Cross and maybe do earthquake relief or something like that. And so you've built up a, a network of people in your nonprofit who go out and deal with those sorts of things and they have practice and experience. But if we ask, you know, Amazon to go and deal with hurricane relief and, you know, the people are putting pressure on Amazon, well, they might be able to do something. But apart from, you know, donations to charity, the Amazon doesn't have the network that the Red Cross does to get the people on the ground. So the, the money that or the, the resources that Amazon uses to help with maybe like earthquake relief or something like that could be wasted because they're not very good at it. And so nowhere does Friedman say that like individuals can't donate to charities that help promote social change. Right. It, it's, it's about the company specifically. Well, and, and I bring up an issue that I'm not even sure if Friedman totally sides with me. I, I suspect he would. But and that is that 
to me, individual giving belongs with individuals. So there's a, a potential crowding out effect that I think happens with both government involvement and corporate involvement in charitable giving, whereas it really belongs with the individual. And therefore, if we work for Target and Target supports the local charitable organizations and then, oh, that I'd work for Target, so I've done my part, right? And so it kind of allows a person to maybe shrug some other moral responsibilities that they may have otherwise had because they're associating their moral obligation along with what Target is doing. And so that's that's one issue that I've had that I think life is a lot cleaner when we really boil it down to the individual of uh, that's where those gifts belong. That's right. Yeah. Social responsibility seems to imply that like a, a corporation would take on society's responsibilities. Yeah. And so, it, you know, in a world where we have just social responsibility, not that anybody's saying that specifically, but in a world where we have just social responsibility, there isn't individual responsibility to, you know, find a charity that you think is uh, worth donating to and donating to that charity. And, it, and the, so I agree with that. And so the other thing I wanted to bring up was just the, the profit calculation. So by allowing the firm to focus on profit maximization, it allows a larger profit to then be distributed back to shareholders, which then puts the money in their hands again to do the charitable activity that they think is is right. So the the cost of following some, some charitable activity is a bottom line cost to the company. And so most people look at that, well, you're making billions anyway, what's another hundred thousand to the local, you know, cause. And so, but ultimately that is taking away the bottom line profits, which then again, reduce money in individuals' hands to probably better place it uh, than where uh, the corporation might be doing anyway. Because the corporation hopefully would still be doing their charitable giving in a cost minimizing way. So, Let's see, I'm picking, oh, I know I pretty much have to put on a a good show for my people that I'm giving somewhere. Where should I give? Well, this would be the least costly place to give. To me, that's not the giving heart, right? You you look for where there's need and try to seek out where maybe you'd get the most bang for the buck, even if you have to spend a little more. If the non-monetary benefits of the recipients are greater than the cost, then that would be justified. Whereas if you're a corporation just trying to kind of put on a, a show, then you just maybe look for the least costly way to do it. And again, it's an inefficient use of resources where uh, things would be better directed with individuals. Yeah. And the, the, the other hand, like the, the underbelly is, and you're right, Russ, this puts, puts money back in the shareholders' hands. But the other side of that would be, you know, let's imagine that we, we don't do that. And let's imagine we just have our business put all of its profits towards, you know, different you know, good causes that are helpful. Well, this harkens back to a couple weeks ago, we were talking about wealth taxes. And Justin brought up the example of the seed and the seed or the corn and the seed corn, which Mm. is that you plant corn, you know, every year and some of that you consume and some of that you put away for seeds for next year for, for a new harvest. And what might happen if we start to consume out of our capital that our companies, because that's ultimately what you're doing, your profit represents the value of your capital. And so if you are decreasing your profits by using your profits to help different causes, you are consuming your capital, you're getting rid of it. And so you're making your machines less valuable, you're making your intellectual property less valuable. At a certain point, if you consume too much of your capital, you're actually not going to be able to continue the company. Just like if you eat too much of your seed corn, you're not going to be able to continue your farm. 
And so even if you know that you think that there is some responsibility for companies to donate to charities or something like that, you know, in the extreme, if, if we think that it's a company's job to forward, you know, other people's interests above their own profits, then actually it might be the case that companies close down. And then you lose future donations that you thought were good. You lose actually, you know, the well-being of, we'll get into a little more next week, the stakeholders, but you lose the well-being of the workers, the well-being of the customers. A lot of people lose when companies shut down. And so this idea that, you know, uh, corporations should be responsible for essentially consuming their own capital can be kind of dangerous when you think of it that way. I want to point out, I think he leaves room for people to have multiple bottom lines. Um, it's not like he's saying we shouldn't do that, but there shouldn't be a policy that somehow maybe forces companies to be donating a certain amount, like the Community Reinvestment Act, the CRA that's in bank, in the banking industry. I can't remember if it applies to other industries or not, but the banking industry is one of the most heavily regulated industries out there. And what the CRA that was passed back in, I can't remember, it was the late 80s or 90s, forces banks to set aside a certain amount of money to give to charities. They get to choose what they get to do, but they really do have to spend some money on local community benefits. So if you ever wonder in your communities, why why does the bank have a sign up on, why did they sponsor the, the baseball diamond or why did they do this or that? Well, that was probably Community Reinvestment Act funds in the banking industry. And so I think certainly Friedman would draw a big line in the sand there that we shouldn't be forced to do it. And at the same time, I think he would say, if you run a company and you think that it'll be profitable or otherwise to be involved with charitable activities, and that's all on the table ahead of time as part of your corporate mission, meaning that shareholders know that before they buy your shares of your company, that's fine. Like that, You're just maximizing profits is, is potentially um, what you're doing. But I think that's where Friedman might argue that's missing the boat. If we start to go down that path, we'd be better off, again, leaving it with the individual. Yeah, that's it. And it relates closely to one idea that's really common, which is like the buy local idea. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of like the other side of that. So buy local tells consumers, well, you need to buy at your businesses locally because that's going to help them and you create more jobs in your town and that sort of thing. But of course, what that misses is there's there's a cost to buying local, which is that we talked about earlier in the podcast today, comparative advantage. It's possible that the person who has the lowest cost of producing something is not someone who lives locally. And so when you buy from someone who is local and they don't have the lowest cost, you are buying something at a higher cost. That means that you're destroying resources to a certain extent. Now, that an, an economist would never say like, oh, that, that can't be worth it. It might be personally worth it for you to promote someone that you like, to help someone that you like in order you know, to, to help their business and you know, maybe it's okay to destroy some resources or to, to bear a higher cost. But you know, the, it's, it's still, the, the reason it could be difficult is that people don't necessarily understand that underlying concept that when you buy local, you know, they don't see that there's, they might see there's a, a higher price tag, but they don't understand it comes at the cost of some resources that are foregone. Mm -hmm. And so I think the same thing here, Russ, with companies <laughs> is that I, I don't think Friedman is saying that a company can't have you know, any, anything else in its minds. But one thing that we can't do as a society is ignore the cost of keeping other things in our mind, which is, you know, the value of the shareholders capital. Uh, if you ignore that, it's to, to our own detriment, I think. Yeah. Certainly. 
All right. Well, this looks like a good time for our break. We did have our philosopher chime in on the chat box. So he's been listening in while he's doing his fatherly duties. And so I'm just going to read his comment here, and then we'll uh, take it off from there. This will be our halftime teaser. So he says, along with Russ's point about individuals possibly shirking responsibility when their corporate uh, corporation contributes, it also, since money is finite and fungible, takes away the right of those people to make individual donations. This robs them of the opportunity to take credit for being charitable, which is something that a lot of people enjoy and that we might want to foster. So with that, we'll roll into our uh, break and come back and chew on those little morsels back in a few. By 2030, the Gordney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and pub public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gordney Institute for updates on our activities and research. All right. So with uh, Justin's teaser, and Justin might be able to join us a little bit off and on on this podcast, he's listening in. And so we'll, we'll see if that happens or not. He talked about robbing the opportunity to take credit for being charitable. So Peter, you want to jump on that one? Yeah. So Justin brought up a very important point. He said, and you know, Russ relayed that money is finite, right? And so if we are sending money to charities, in order to for the company to take on some social responsibility. That means there's less money for the people in the company, employees, the managers, the, the shareholders, uh, to privately contribute to charity. In other words, it, it takes away your, your rights to that money to contribute to charity. And you know, this is pretty standard economics that, you know, capital goods that we were just talking about a little while ago make laborers more productive. So, you know, if you have a computer at work, you're way more productive than if you had a typewriter at work. This is a really great example. And yet spend, you know, minutes at a time writing on envelopes and stamping things rather than just sending an email. Um, so computers make workers more productive, which means their wages go up. This is pr pretty standard macroeconomics. And so when you devalue capital, which is what happens when we, again, have some sort of like donation to charity that lowers our profitability, when you devalue your capital, you also lower the wages of your workers, which diminishes their chance to privately donate to charity. Wow. Well, and so James Andrioni, way back when I did my dissertation back in the late 90s, he was a pioneer on trying to study altruism and uh, giving and what kind of drives people. And so he established what has uh, come to be known as the warm glow. So we have kind of a two-part reasons. We want to help somebody out. Uh, but we also get this private benefit of you just like help helping people out, right? So it's kind of this private, personal part of the giving process that you get when you do it. And so I think here there's there's twofold elements. I think that's part of what Justin was saying. People are getting robbed of of, of that ability to to do it themselves. But furthermore, the CEO of the company or whoever's kind of heading up the the charitable uh, part of the business 
is getting a big private benefit by them, again, using corporate funds to make, to get them some benefit since they're driving the direction of where those funds are going. Yeah, this is a, a classic example of rent seeking. And this harkens, you know, we, we've made a few different parallels to our wealth conversation. So if you ha- didn't listen to that podcast, you should go back a few weeks and work up, look at the wealth uh, tax podcast. But it harkens back to that because this is a way that CEOs can do what we call in economics rent seeking. And so they can use resources uh, that, you know, are the shareholders' resources, remember, the people who own the company are the people whose resources the CEO are in charge of. They can use these resources in order to forward their own ends. And so one way to do it, as Russ just alluded to, is to spend a bunch of money at a charity and become the hero of the charity. You know, it's not like all the workers who made the profits possible are are attending the fancy charity galas and getting recognized for their work contributing to the charity. It's the CEO of the company. And, you know, it could be even more extreme than that. The CEO of the company, you know, maybe secretly has some sort of like, you know, genetic disease or something like that, that they're not telling anyone about that there's no cure for. And then maybe the company decides, sorry, shareholders, but, you know, we're interested in social responsibility. And the CEO says, and I think the social responsibility is going to be to cure this very specific disease that I haven't told you I have. (laughs) Obviously, this is like an extreme example of what we're talking about. But there's lots of ways that you could support companies, even politically. You could support companies that uh, support political causes that you agree with as a CEO. This is a way of rent seeking. You're taking money away from the shareholders who you have agreed to help. And from the workers, by the way, because as we just mentioned, the workers' wages are going to go down standard economics. You're taking money away from other people and you're using it for your own interest. You're reallocating resources to yourself. And that's rent seeking. Yeah. I think another example that popped to mind was, especially business ethics, since Justin's teaching that class now, but you got all these case studies that you look over the last 30 years of corporate CEOs who were bad people basically stealing money or, or, you know, from the company, but they were the ones giving back to the community, right? And building the new library. And it's now the Enron, you know, what, what was his name again? Oh, anyway, what, the, the number of, what's that, Justin? Ken, Ken Lay. Yeah, Ken Lay. So that you got the Kenneth Lay library and you've got, you know, all these shysters basically that were giving tons of money back to the community. And in, in their case, I think their, their guilty conscience was like, well, I didn't really earn this anyway. I stole it. So let me make up for some of my badness by, by doing some donations. And again, I, th- I think that's an extreme case, but it shows that misdirected funds cause a little more chaos and take your eye off the ball of what you're doing for your company. Uh, and you start these rent-seeking uh, avenues in a number of different ways. And Russ, that's a really good point. I I hadn't thought of it that way before, but there really is sort of, ironically enough, you know, uh, and we'll get into next week, the the arguments against Friedman, but ironically enough, a lot of the people who argue against Friedman talk about externalities, but there's sort of an externality here, which is that if you are the CEO of the company and you're spending someone else's resources Mm -hmm. for charity, you're not bearing the full cost of that action. We call that a negative externality. So the CEO, when he gives to different charities, is imposing a negative externality on the shareholders. And what normal economic analysis predicts is actually that there would probably be too much corporate social giving in society rather than not, not enough because you overproduce when there's a negative externality, just like pollution. Right. And so, Justin, I wanted to come to you on your Bowling Alone. What were your thoughts there from that book? So Bowling Alone was a book that was published in, I think, mid to late 80s to mid to early 90s. I want to say like 92 or something. 
but it was very influential. And one of its theses is that since the 50s, there has been this uh, disappearance of small local clubs like bowling leagues and things like the Lions Club, and that this was actually kind of tearing apart communities. And one of the things that I think is that a lot of those clubs, one of the things that they did was do really local charitable giving, and they did it really well. And those clubs took pride in that kind of giving. You know, they're sponsoring baseball teams, you know, uh, sponsoring all kinds of local events. And to the extent that individuals now not only shirk uh, the responsibility, but also don't have the opportunity to do that kind of local giving, not only because they don't have that kind of money, but also because their jobs now, uh, you know, have uh, mandated, uh, you know, if you work at Google, you don't leave the campus until 7 p.m. You eat there, you do everything there. Right. That this is also a cost. Um, And, you know, the thesis of bowling alone was widely hailed by people on the left that, look, this kind of corporatization of this, of your social life, isn't great. So it's odd to see people from the left arguing that, no, corporations should uh, swallow more of your social life to do the things we want (laughs) them to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think bringing stuff back to the individuals is just so important for our communities. I think of the the Shriners with the funny little hats and driving around on the on the uh, little go karts in the parades, right? Is what, what flashed into my mind, and it was always these you know groups of people, community members. And you're right; those those groups are dwindling. So yeah, what's interesting? So so I can speak to that personally. I worked in the, the corporate world before I went to grad school. <laughs> And one of the things that we did is we took a day off work. And, and so I always found this odd, but now when Justin says this, maybe it starts to make sense. <laughs> we, we took a day off work and we went to do Habitat for Humanity. And so we helped build a house. And you sort of know how these events run. As I said earlier, there are people who have a comparative advantage in doing you know, charitable giving and volunteering. And then there's people like me who do not have any sort of ability <laughs> to build a house, who, who has to learn the nail gun on the day one, who people tell me like which sort of screwdriver it is and I have to think about it for you know, like more than one minute. I admit all these things. So I'm really bad as, as well as a lot of my coworkers at, you know, handiwork, building houses. It's not my comparative advantage. And so I thought, why do we do this? Why, why are we taking a day off work? But now that Russ has said this, it's very interesting because instead of donating money, what the... CEO could do is they could still tout that, you know, all these different people went and helped with this event. That's still something that we could do. But interestingly enough, none of our deadlines changed. Isn't that weird? We all had all the same deadlines. We took this day off work. It's not like it was an optional thing and you stayed in or you stayed out, you know. And so that's really what happened is the the company got to swallow a little more of my life. I could, I, I could have gone and done this with a club or an organization, you know, like, like the Elks Club, like some of these clubs that uh-huh. Justin talked about. But instead, I did it during work hours. I had to work doubly hard the next day. And I was terrible at it. At it. And so I, I, I really think that Justin has connected a lot of dots here, that this is, this is maybe a, a big issue, this idea of corporate social responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if our little podcast is going to be the rallying cry to get the nation around (laughs) people supporting Friedman, because I I think as we'll get into next week, the criticisms are are large, and I I really look forward to all of us being able to look at these criticisms uh, carefully and point out the flaws that we all believe are there. And so I think having uh, society's resources focused in on the, the great thing of, of making a profit. It, that's the thing about the corporate, you know, having it be a dirty word is, is, is the shame of it all. Um, and I think Friedman very eloquently 
showed how the free market can bring about this, you know, marvelous thing of allocating resources to their highest and best use. But it, it, it's a process. I, I've learned that it's not like there's a stock of knowledge and boom, we all get it and we're done. It's very counterintuitive in many ways. And so it takes uh, people like us to keep training the brains, uh, whether it's through a podcast or through our classrooms of, of showing why this stuff is important and how we can be really off the mark and cause detriment by getting distracted with uh, corporate giving or whatever the flavor of the month is. You're channeling, channeling Nobel Prize winner uh, James Buchanan there. James Buchanan used to say, it takes varied iterations to force al- alien concepts on unwilling minds, <laughs> reluctant minds rather. And I, I think that's exactly right. You know, it, again and again and again, we talk about this and sort of have to emphasize it and in different ways. Yeah. Well, and we need to come up with a different word for rent seeking. Any, any help with that? I just, that, it's such an important concept. I, I think it's a little bit of zero-sum mentality and, and fixed pie. I, I think some of the criticisms we'll get into next week is the virtuous circle of life will, will work itself out better is what some of the criticisms to Friedman will give with um, some of the stakeholders that where Peter was saying there's a fixed amount of money and so now we're, we're not directing resources to the right place. I think the criticisms will be something along the lines of, well, we're just going to, it's going to make more. It's going to build on itself. It's, it's an endogenous right. uh, thing and there'll be growth. And I think Friedman has a good argument back to that as well. And those will be some of the issues that we can uh, get into next week, but I don't know. Uh, things on rent seeking, uh, there's got to be a better word for the general public to understand the concept of rent seeking. Cause the, the first thing that comes to most normal people's minds would be, I got to pay my rent this month. The first, the first, <laughs> the first day of the month, month is yeah. coming. Yeah. I got to pay my rent. So Justin, you got a, you're swinging in on something or. Okay. <laughs> I thought he came to the camera folks. And so I thought uh, we were going to get enlightened with a, a new word for <laughs> rent seeking. Okay, carpet bagging. I, I'm not sure I'm going to use the first one there, but <laughs> you know, the, the rent seeking concept is just a lot of envy, I think, works into it and, and greed. And it's just too easy to get sloppy. Life is complicated enough. I think if we focus in on maximizing profits, life would be a lot better. But we have to understand the path of those profits back to the individual and how that can foster a better world. That's the message that's missing, I think, with from Friedman's corporate social responsibility. Yeah. Uh, the, the way that I would uh, I think about rent seeking, I, I think, you know, all economists d- dislike the term nowadays. It's kind of one of those things that has gotten stuck in the zeitgeist. But, uh, you know, the, the way that I would describe it is you're using when you use resources to take resources from someone else. It's those resources yeah. you destroyed. And so if you're breaking into someone's house and you buy a lock picking kit, and you spend, you know, your wealth on that. That's wealth that could have gone somewhere productive, but instead it went into trying to break into someone's house. Yeah. And that's really the key difference between rent seeking and profit seeking. And your energies of trying to chase that's that. Right. Even if you were unsuccessful at stealing whatever you were trying to steal, it would be your effort and resources being used to do it is half of the problem as well. All right. So let's see. Coming from Justin here in the chat box, one thing Peter said about it resulting in too much charity. Uh, That sounds harsher than he might mean. Here comes the correction from the philosopher, which might be something closer to less efficient charity or 
charity with worse returns. Yeah, that we might get a bigger bang for the buck. I think part of what I'm arguing too, we haven't brought up Hayek, but we usually bring up Hayek each time that localized knowledge, you know, you're going to have a better idea of where those funds should go. If it's, if it's more dispersed with individuals, we'll likely be more efficient with the returns that we're getting as, as Justin's saying. Yeah, I, th- I think Justin <laughs> maybe caught something that may, maybe sounds too harsh, but I would not be afraid to say there's too much corporate charity. I, I, I would, you know, stake my flag there still. Maybe we can talk <laughs> about that next week when we get into uh, some criticisms of Friedman in response to those criticisms. Okay. So I don't mind staking the flag on too much corporate charity. All right. So part two will come next week and we will look at the criticisms and dig a little deeper into uh, stakeholders and how if we were just following more bottom lines, somehow that would make the world a better place. And so we will get those ideas out to you so that everybody comes away, hopefully a supporter of Friedman's thoughts. <laughs> That's our secret hidden agenda. But anyway, folks, this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. Appreciate you all listening. If you feel so inclined, I'd like to have you hit the old five-star button so that other folks, other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Thanks.